Welcome to the Living Faith Missionary Church Podcast. You're about to listen to a message from Pastor Chris Starn, Senior Pastor at Living Faith in Yoder, Indiana. It is our prayer that this message is an encouragement and a blessing to your life. So we talked about how, and one of the things we talked about was the fact that God has a purpose. Everything that God has, God does, God does for a purpose. And his main purpose is to bring glory to himself, to glorify his name. <coughs> so if that's the case, then when God created us, he makes our purpose to glorify him. We are to bring glory to him. And what God has done over and over again, you'll see this in scripture. God is, he, he's, he's a God of word, first of all. He, he, he's not a silent God. He doesn't sit back and, and, and not speak and not interact with his children. He doesn't interact with, he interacts with his creation. He, he's a God of word, but he's also a God of action. He, he takes action. And the thing about it is, is that both of those things, whether it's his word or whether it's his actions, they both declare his glory. And what is the glory of God? So when I say the glory of God, what am I talking about? What I'm talking about are his attributes. What is he? So when we think about his power, when we think about his wisdom, when we think about his, when we look at nature and we think about his creativity, you know, it, it looks pretty bleak out there right now, but just wait till the spring comes and the different flowers and the different trees and all the different varieties of what God has created comes out. We, we think about his goodness. We think about his truth. We think about his justice. All these things are his glory. All these things are his attributes. And what we do is we're going to see them on display in his verses today. So let's go to verse 21. And here is, remember, we, we, we're up to this point that I, I, he's in the temple He's praying. He knows that the Assyrians are, are surrounding, but it's also it's not going to end like Sennacherib thinks it is. And this is what it says. It says, Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying... Now remember, I, I said last week that, I, I might have been two weeks ago, I said that a lot, a lot of times the, the king would send for the prophet when they wanted to have answers, when they needed to hear from God. Sometimes the prophet would come to the king. Now, usually when the prophet would come to the king, it was usually not a good thing. Because chances are the prophet was there to tell you something you didn't want to hear. Think of David when when Nathan comes to tell him about Bathsheba and him and their relationship. And the fact that he killed Uriah. But now what happens is Isaiah sends a, a, a note to him, to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. He says, Hezekiah, you've prayed, now I'm going to act. That's what he says. He says, She despises you. She scorns you. The virgin daughter of Zion, she wags her head behind you. The daughter of of Jerusalem. That seems kind of odd. What is he what is he talking about there? Well, we know that God has already responded to Hezekiah's request for Isaiah to pray to God for the people of Israel, for the remnant. Okay, we know that. We saw that. We saw that in verses six and seven of this chapter last week. But Hezekiah now goes to God in humble prayer. 
And because of this prayer, because of Hezekiah's humbleness, what happens? Isaiah is prompted to send a message to Hezekiah. Now, if, if, if it was his prayer that prompted it, we have to ask the question, what would have happened if Hezekiah hadn't prayed? Now, we know the answer. God's will would have been done anyways. We know that. No matter what, no matter what we do, God's word, God's will, will happen. You should be on slide. the next slide, by the way. There you go. Thank you. So, God's will must be accomplished no matter what. But, in this explanation, this, this accomplishes the fact that, you know, prayer to God is important. In, in God's eyes, us praying to Him is important. He wants us to pray. And He acts when we pray humbly. It's what it says he did here with Hezekiah. And one of the many key values of prayer is what it does is when we are going to God in prayer, it requires us to humbly go to God and admit the fact that, number one, we cannot do this by ourselves. That, that, is, that is probably one of the key factors, one of the key benefits of prayer is I am telling God, God, I can't do this. I, on my own, I am. In, it's impossible. We, I, I don't have control over the future. I can't tell you what tomorrow is going to, what I'm going to do tomorrow, what's going to happen tomorrow. Only God, only you can. So I need you. I need you to help me. And what God has promised here in, these, in, these, in this verse, when he talks about the fact that she despises you, she scorns you, he's talking about the fear that Judah once had for this army that has surrounded them is going to turn to scorn. Now, now what is scorn? Yeah, it's not a word we hear very often anymore. When you scorn something, you're, you're, it would be like, oh, what? Why was I ever afraid of you? Why, why, did, why did I even let that bother me? You know, when you score, you don't want to do it. It's like it's, you realize how ridiculous it is, how it really is not going to bother you anymore. It's just not a big deal. You're, you're nothing in reality. And I don't mean you call people nothing. What I mean is the situation that you were worried about. For example, I'll give you a great example. My daughter, and, she, and, and, and she, she'll admit this, she is a, she's scared of bears. When was the last time you saw a bear in Ossian? <laughs> See, bears, but not bears. She, she, she'll, she'll keep Is there, are there black bears around here today? No. No. You don't have to worry about the bears. So one day she will scorn that. She'll think, that was ridiculous as a child for me to be scared of a bear. Okay? That's scorning. He's going to turn it to score. Judah, Judah is just depicted as this young girl, young innocent girl, who is is now was be, is rebuffing the bully of the neighborhood, who's coming to cause trouble or make advances or however you want to say it. 
And now, has, and now this young woman has contempt for the bully. Judah will have contempt for, for the Assyrians. How will this happen? We're not told yet. We're not told what causes this, what, what happens that causes just yet. But we know that if God says it will happen, it's going to happen. We know that. God, nothing God has ever said in Scripture that's going to happen didn't happen. So everything in Scripture that we haven't seen yet is going to happen. You know, if, if, I, if you ask me to do something and I do it every time, chances are you come to me the next time, you're going to expect me to do it, right? But if I don't, you're probably sooner or later going to stop asking me to do it because you, you know it's not going to happen. With God, we don't have to worry about it. If he says he's going to do it, he's going to do it, he's going to do it. And then we go on, verse 23. And God says, whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your, lifted your, raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? He's like saying, who do you think you're talking to? Do, do you think you're talking to Hezekiah? Do, do you think you're talking to Judah, the people of Judah? Do you, do you think you're saying things about them and against them? No, you've done something that you don't realize you've done, or maybe you do and you just don't care. You, you have done it against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord. You have said, with my many chariots I have gone. And you can probably sense the, probably the, you know, the sarcasm in, the, in his voice. What his voice would say is, by, you know, by your servants you've mocked the Lord. And you've said, with my many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains. You've boasted way too much to the far recesses of Lebanon and cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest heights and its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my feet all the streams of Egypt. You're boastful. God has heard everything that Sennacherib said. Think about this. That's what Hezekiah says. If the Lord, previously, in the previous section, he says, he tells Isaiah, if you, the Lord your God has heard what Sennacherib has said, he heard it. He heard it all. But even more so, more than what he heard, God knows Sennacherib's heart. He knows his heart. And if he knows Sennacherib's heart, he knows your heart. I said, we were talking last night with family and I was asked the question, you know, is it okay to do, you know, is it okay to, to wish evil on somebody yet be nice to them? I'm like, no. No. Because God, Jesus says, if, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed, already committed adultery in your heart. If you get angry with your brother in your heart, even if you don't project it to them or you say it to them, you've murdered them. Out of the heart flows who we truly are, and the tongue is the tongue piece of the of the heart. So if you you just can't separate the two, if it's in your heart, it's going to come out. And if, even if it's even if you don't say it, it's what you're feeling in your heart. That's one thing Jesus he has expounded on what God was saying in the Old Testament. He 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 clarified it is what he did, saying that. If, if you think this in your heart, it's the same thing as doing it. 
So God will begin, he's going to build a case against the blasphemy of Sennacherib. And he does this by asking rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question is a question that there's no, you don't need to answer. God is not expecting Sennacherib to answer it. Why? Because God answers it for him. And what's the point of that? Well, the point of that is, if I come to you and I ask you a question, then I answer it, and that's what you were thinking. It's going to hit you a little bit harder. It's like, oh, they know what I'm thinking. They know how I feel about this. He says, who have you mocked? He says, the Holy One of Israel. God immediately answers him. I know what, you, I know what you're thinking. So what we have here is when Sennacherib is mocking God, when he's blaspheming God, what we have is, is, a, is, is essentially a theological battle against Yahweh. This isn't about the size of Assyria's army. It's not about the size of Judah's army. It's not about who wears the bigger crown, Hezekiah or Sennacherib, who has, who has dug the most wells, who has cut down the most trees. This is a personal defiance of the God of Israel by Sennacherib. And see, when we raise our voice to somebody, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're expressing contempt and defiance against that person. And that's exactly what Sennacherib and, and Rabash and Rabshakeh had done. Because remember, when the, 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 the um, counselors of Hezekiah were standing before Rabshakeh, he, and, and they say, hey, don't, don't, speak, don't speak in Aramaic, in, in Hebrew, speak in, speak in Aramaic, don't speak in Hebrew, speak in, in the language so that, that they can't hear, basically. He does, he raises his voice. He has contempt. And they are belittling the power of God with a very defiant voice. You see, when you and I, when we are approaching God, we are to do it with our eyes downcast. Acknowledging our humbleness. But what has Sennacherib done? He has openly defied and been disrespectful against the Holy One of Israel. And then God is repeating Sennacherib's statements. He's, he's blaming Sennacherib. You should be on the two slides ahead, I think. There we go. He's blaming Sennacherib. He's saying, the fault is yours. It, you, can't, you can't blame it on your army generals. You can't blame it on Rabshakeh. It's you. You alone. You're to blame. It's where it belongs. Because Sennacherib has now questioned Yahweh's ability to deliver Jerusalem. God can't do that. You ever said that? You ever thought about the, the, the foolishness of that statement? God can't? There's nothing that God can't do. Unless it, unless it defies and goes against his nature. God can't sin, obviously. When it comes to us, there's nothing he can't do. 
There's nothing he won't do for you if you need it. Snickerab is questioning God's omnipotence, one of his attributes. He's all-powerful. Does he realize, does he really realize who he's talking to? That's why I don't understand people who think they can manipulate God to get what they want. I'm like, do, do you understand? You're, you're, you're trying to mess with an omniscient God, a God who knows everything. If he knows everything, he knows what you're trying to do. That's why when we come to him, why, it's why we have to come to him humbly. He knows what's in your heart. He knows before you ask him what, you, what you're going to ask him for. He knows what you want. And he knows where your heart is and whether or not you're doing it for the right reason or for the wrong reason. Remember, Paul wrote to the church, he says, you know, you don't have because you don't, have because you don't ask. And I'm sure some of them are thinking, oh, I ask all the time. I ask, I ask for God to increase my, 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 my land. I ask him to increase my stock, my, my fields, and, my, and he hasn't done it. And then Paul says, but you haven't asked for the right reasons. God knows the reasons you're coming to him. It has to be humbly, as Hezekiah had done. Because it was because of Hezekiah's prayer that now God is acting. Hezekiah is talking to the holy and divine king of the universe who sits enthroned on a throne above the heavens with his counsel and looks at man and I imagine laughs at times, but we are like grasshoppers to him. But he treats us like children. Snickerab has been praising himself and making some pretty audacious claims about what he's capable of doing. And it reminded me as I was reading that, it reminded me back in Isaiah 14, which is when it's talking about the king of Babylon, but it also is kind of a, a double reference to Satan himself. It says, you said in your heart, in verse 13 of chapter 14, it says, I will ascend to the heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. You know, we do that when we, when we put ourselves as king and lord of our own lives. We say, God, you know, I, I know, you, you know, I don't need you. I don't want you. We say, I'm better than you. I have better ideas than you do, God, about what I need and what I want. And what I should do. I don't need you. We are placing ourselves over God. And that was Sennacherib was doing. He said, I've done all these things. Do you think your God's going to be able to keep me from coming after you? God says, yeah, I'll do it. I'll keep you from it. Sennacherib is blaspheming the Lord who claimed to have and he's claiming to have supernatural characteristics and abilities. He's setting himself above God. He's trying to remove God from his throne. But God, in the end here, puts him in his place. And this is what he says in verse 26. He says, have you not heard that I have determined it long ago? I planned from the days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins. 
He says, all these things that you keep saying that you've done, don't you know that I'm the one who planned it out? Don't you know the one that I'm, I'm the one who planned for you to have the job that you had? Don't you know that I'm the one that planned for you to live where you live? I'm the one that planned for you to be married to who you're married to? I'm the one who planned for you to have the children that you have? Don't you know that? I plan for you to have these fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded. I'm the one who made it possible. That's what God is telling him. And have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. God is he's chastising Snickers, saying, I'll tell you who's in power. It's me. I am the one. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord Almighty. I am the one who actually did these things and allowed you to do it and made it happen. Sennacherib doesn't control history. Our government doesn't control history, past, present, or even the future. You and I do not control the past, the present, or the future. The actual... Translation for verse 6, 26 should actually read, Surely you've heard. In Hebrew, that's what's intended there, is surely you've heard. He's not calling him surely. He's saying you must have heard. There's no way you couldn't have heard. He should have known. Sennacherib should have known by his, by the, all the information. Because when they would come in, they would take a culture and they would absorb all the information from that culture. When he took the northern kingdom, I'm sure he took some of the things that would have told, talked about God. There's no doubt that Sennacherib should have known that God had planned all this. That God was the God of all, God of creation. Just as you and I. You can say the same thing to us. Surely you, you've heard. Nobody will be able to stand before God and say, I, I never heard about you. I don't know who you are. He'll say, no, no, no. Surely you've heard. You know who I am. The God of Israel controls history with his plans. And just as us today, Sennacherib is without excuse. He has no excuse. Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, his glory, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse we cannot stand before god and say nobody told me they took the bibles from me nobody told me there was a god nobody told me about christ everything was taken from me i was hidden they hid it all from me god says no look outside look at the sun look at how creation works look at the human body look at the eye look at the ear look at the brain look at the creatures look at the flowers look at the trees look at the sky look at the stars God is there. I, he, he is like an artist who signs a painting. He has signed everything he created. Man is without excuse. 
Now, in, in verse 26 of Isaiah 37, God is declaring not only does he control history, but he can also control those people in order to accomplish his will. Now, this is not fatalism. This, this, is, this is not, you know, God, that we're not these robots who go around with God telling us what to do and we have no control over it. Because our lives are not pre-planned down to the nanosecond. God gave us free will. When, when in the garden, you know, he says, let us create man in our own image. He's talking to his counsel. What do you mean? What part of that is he created us with free will. God has free will. And he created us with free will. That's part of being an imager of God. But what it, this does say is that all the victories that Sennacherib is claiming, all the victories that you and I claim in our lives, in reality, God had planned beforehand for them to happen. That's my, my favorite verse. My life verse is, is in Ephesians, Ephesians 6. You know, uh, we are God's work, Christ, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works that he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. You and I need to walk in the things. God control, God lays these things in our lives. We have a choice to walk in them. He gives us free will. But when those things happen, what caused it to happen? It was God. So that's why we need to give him the glory in all things. But what does this say? But what this, does, this is saying that the victories that Sennacherib is claiming glory for were actually caused by God. Sennacherib cannot take any credit for them. None. In other words, Sennacherib had God's permission to do these things. God allowed it. Now understand, God does not make everything happen. For example, somebody will say, well, how can, how can, a, a, how can God kill all, the, allow all those babies to be killed? An abortion. God didn't force it to happen. He gave man a choice. But he allows it to happen for a purpose. And believe me, we don't always understand it. I don't always understand his purpose, but must also, it's mostly because he's God, I'm not. He basically told that to Job. I was talking to someone again last night. I said, you know, think of Job. He has an opportunity to ask God, why, why is this happening to me? And God says, were you there when I created everything? Were you there when the sons of God yelled with joy, when the angels sang, when I created all of things? Were you there? You have no right to question me. So basically, suck it up, buttercup. It's going to be bad, but I'm here for you. And he ends up blessing Job way more than he ever had to begin with. God, we can't take credit for the things that God does in our lives. He planned it. He planned it all out. If God had not allowed it, Sennacherib would never have been allowed to conquer those cities. If God had not allowed it, they would not have been surrounding Jerusalem. If he had not allowed it, Sennacherib would never have been king of Assyria. But he is, and Sennacherib has a problem. That problem is very much explained in Proverbs 16. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. See, what happens is pride will twist our minds into thinking that the things that are we do, that we do in our lives and things that we are accomplishing in our lives are because of us. 
Well, look what I've done. Look what I can do. And we've got to be careful because we could very much easily, like Sennacherib did, blaspheme God because of it. The very one who gives us the power to do what we're boasting about. And it will ultimately lead to our destruction as it will Sennacherib's. Verse 28, God continues. He says, I know you're sitting down. I know when you sit down. Can you imagine? Think about the number of times in a day that you sit down and get up. God knows every single time that you do that. And you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. Don't, don't think I don't see it. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Hmm. Think about that a bit. That's what they would use to control a horse. But he's going to do more than that. He's going to put a hook in his nose to pull him. See, God's sovereignty is based on his full knowledge of those who he uses to fulfill his perfect will. God has full knowledge of you. He knows what you think. He knows when you wake up. He knows when you go to sleep. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're dreaming. He, he knows when you what you're going to eat the morning before you even eat it. Sometimes I wish he would tell me not to eat something because <laughs> he knows I'm going to eat it. I know I shouldn't. You know. He knows the breaths you're going to take. He knows the number of hairs on your head, though for some people it's a little easier to count than others. But he knows these things. Full knowledge. Again, this doesn't mean that we are automatons, is what I'm trying to say. It doesn't mean that we're automatons, that we're just these machines that God can move and make us do what we want to do. That's not it. It means that God allows us the human freedom to either choose to hate him or love him. Now, Sennacherib has chosen to hate God and to rage against him. Rage. That's rage. Rage is uncontrollable anger that gets expressed by strong physical action. Have you ever felt like that? I hate to admit it, but I have. It's unreasonable. And that's what, that's what Sennacherib is doing. It's because of his rage against Yahweh that he's ultimately going to suffer the divine judgment of God. He's, God, God says, I'm going to force you back the way you came. You thought, he probably thought he was going to go all the way into Egypt. We know that he was fighting the Egyptians, or they thought he was, in, in Lachish, which is south, kind of southwest of Jerusalem. He never makes it to Egypt. He thought he was going to conquer Egypt too. Oh, pride. Hubris. I think that's one of the biggest, excuse me, the biggest problems we have in Washington, D.C. right now is pride and hubris. We think we can do anything. Well, you know, we're, we're the United States. And sometimes they think, well, we're God, it's God ordained. But we don't believe the founding fathers knew about God. Come on. It's God-ordained. Pride goes before judgment. 
But what's going to happen now, he's going to switch. God is switching from talking to Sennacherib. He says, this is what I'm going to do to you. And then he goes, and now he's going to talk to Hezekiah. And he says, this is what he tells you. He says, and this shall be a sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself. And in the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. What he's basically telling them is, is just in that little spot, is the fact that, you know, this is how you're going to know what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you ahead of time what's going to happen so that by the end of this time, by the end of this, when these three years happens, you're going to know again that I'm proving to yourself that I'm God and I know all. He says that first year, you're just going to eat what, what grows by itself. You know how that is. I have lettuce that grows all over the yard because if I don't collect the seeds, the wind blows them and they blow all over it. i got lettuce growing in the ground you know, all around in the yard. Not a bad thing, but he says that's all you're going to eat is what's growing on itself. In the second year, what springs from that? Again, and in the third year, you're going to actually plant vineyards and you're going to eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of the host will do this. If, if we look back when Isaiah met Ahaz, which was Hezekiah's father, at the same place that, that Rabshakeh met with the officials from Hezekiah, Ahaz was given a sign, a sign of Emmanuel, the sign of the coming Messiah, and he rejected it. He did his own thing anyways. But Hezekiah is not going to reject it. He's going to accept it. He's going to accept God's sign of their deliverance. He's given the details of the effect of the invasion. We, we, we kind of, without, without thinking about it, you think about how long it takes to rebuild a country after it's been invaded. When the United States goes into a country, when we invade a country, we completely destroy the telecommunications and the power structure. And then we turn around and we rebuild it. That's what we do. When we've taken, when we've, dest- when we've destroyed all that, we've we've conquered the country, we rebuild it. Well, that's not what, <laughs> you know, the the Assyrians are not going to come and rebuild all those fortified cities that they destroyed. A military campaign, an invasion, really hurts the economy. It hurts the production of the of the area, and that is what he's talking about. He says the people will not plant for two years, but they will survive. They're going to survive on what's been, what's been growing on its own. Then the third year, they're actually going to sow and reap. And he's assured that the people of Judah are going to survive the Assyrian, Assyrian invasion. See, you and I are also assured that no matter what happens as we get closer to the time of the end, no matter what kind of things happen, we are assured that we are going to be saved. It's going to be tough. We're going to come under more and more persecution. We see that in Scripture. But we're going to be okay. God's got this. Those remaining in Jerusalem after the Syrians go home will ultimately leave the city and they're going to plant and they're going to reap. And what does this? God's zeal. So what is God's zeal? What is that? The zeal of the Lord is kind of closely related to his jealousy. His jealousy, his love for Jerusalem, for the Israelites, 
and his jealousy that they were chasing after other gods. In the ancient Near East, pagans would use zeal as a description of the jealous tension between rival gods. Israel used this expression, Isaiah uses this expression, to describe the Lord's intense love, his protective dedication, how he had so much zeal for Israel that he would protect them like this. It doesn't mean that they can run roughshod over him and do whatever they want. They need to respond to his zeal. It is the zeal of the Lord that hung Jesus on the cross to die for you and me. It's this everlasting loyalty toward his own people and to his divine purposes for them. It's a zeal of the Lord that will cause everything that has been foreseen in Israel's future to happen. All their hope, all their prophetic hope, all their passionate commitment is because of God's passionate zeal for them. And this is where we find out what's going to happen. Verse 33 says, Therefore thus shall it says the Lord God concerning the king of Assyria, you shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Isaiah is turning to this, now the long-term prophecy of Judah's survival of the Assyrian invasion to the immediate problem of this army that's sitting outside. Sennacherib and his army are not going to set a single foot inside the city. They're not even going to shoot an arrow over the wall. God's going to defend it. He's going to do it for his own sake and for his own glory. And it's also going to do be it because of his great love for David, who founded the city. It was held by the Jebusites. He conquered it. He founded it. God, is, God remembers these things. He remembers those who seek his own heart. So what happens? What causes them to not be able to do this? We see it in verse 36. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, those these were all dead bodies. It happened at night. They weren't at, in battle. They were asleep in all their tents or on the ground. And 185 of them did not wake up in the morning. 185,000 of them did not wake up in the morning. This is probably the beginning of one of the most dramatic scenes in the life of Judah. Israel's been urging the king and the people of Judah to trust. Isaiah has been urging the king and the people to trust God. Trust God. He will take care of it. Don't fret. Don't be afraid. Trust God. And now God shows that they can trust him. And Isaiah is now going to see the vindication of all that time of telling them since chapter 7 to trust God. An angel of Yahweh is going to enter the camp and kill 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. And since this happens, what does Sennacherib have to do? He has no choice. He's, he's not going to 
conquer Jerusalem now, he's going to leave. So what happens? 37. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. He never went out again to battle. Never went up against Jerusalem again. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adremelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with a sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esharden, or Esharden, Hardan, his son, reigned in his place. So he returns home. He's defeated. He's not going to attack Jerusalem. Assyria was kind of like the Titanic of the day, you think about it. Everybody thought it was invincible. They thought, you, know, you can't go up against Assyria. You're never going to win against Assyria. The Titanic? Oh, it'll never sink. That's first voyage back over there, across the Atlantic. What did it do? An iceberg sunk it. Assyria seemed indestructible. But in reality, it was weak against the right enemy. Sennacherib had picked the wrong fight. Now, understand, 20 years had passed. We know this from the history books and from the records. 20 years had passed from the time when he left Jerusalem and got back to Nineveh. Between that time and the time that he was in his temple, and his sons killed him. But him being in the temple is kind of reminiscent of 20 years ago when Hezekiah was in the temple of the Lord. But there's a big difference. The Assyrian sources confirm the fact that he was killed by his sons. And he was praying in this temple. And this temple was a shrine to a powerless God. But Hezekiah was praying to the true, all-powerful, living God. The Assyrians would brag about their successful campaigns all the time. We go back and we see in their, in their reliefs and in their writings, they talk about all the amazing things they did in their national archives, but they never talk about their defeats. So we have, we actually have what Sennacherib said about Hezekiah. This is what he said when he wrote, Hezekiah, I made a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in a cage. That's all he says about what happened. But we know that Isaiah tells us the truth because the Bible is not about man's glory. It's about God's glory, as our life should be. There are two different ways we can choose to live today. We can hide the, the ugly details and we try to get God to collude with us in assembling a little, our own little personal world of pleasure, our little personal world of make-believe for our own reputation, our own comfort. Or we can allow God to have his story lived out in our lives. We can bow to his will and promote his glory, whatever adjustments that we need to make. We can do that because His glory is our salvation. If, if we choose the first way, if we, if we choose to make our own little world here without God, we're going to end up frustrated. God will always seem to be against us, and we will have no 
fortitude. Now, if we choose God's way, it's going to seem like the world is always against us. But he'll draw near to us with empowering mercies. And we'll become limited proof against all odds that God is the true Savior. Now, we all want the actual last line of our lives to be, and they lived happily ever after, right? Isn't that what we want? But sometimes courage demands that we jeopardize that happy ending. And what we decide at a very pivotal moment in our life depends on how we define happiness. The world will say, Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I've got a beautiful feeling. Everything's going my way. <laughs> and and if, if we embrace that ideal... The reality is that our happiness is always brittle. It's insecure. You know that. You get up in the morning. Oh, it's a great day. Ah, oh, it's awesome. What happens? Car doesn't start. You get to work. You spill coffee on your clothes. People who are supposed to have a job done don't get it done. You get home. Your wife and the kids have had a bad day. You can cut the tension with a knife. You're starting to get a cold. You're not feeling good. The world is against you. When that happens, we end up having no courage to risk anything. But see, there's another true happiness. And that's when Jesus says, Seek first my kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and all its righteousness and all these things will be added to you. What will you eat? What will you drink? What will you wear? God will take care of that. Do you see, God, God arranges things both for his glory and for our joy. Can you imagine the people standing on the wall as the Assyrians wake up and start leaving. Do you think they were joyful? Do you think they were shouting for joy? Do you think they were praising God? I know Hezekiah was. The question is, are you going to trust God with an audacious faith? And are you going to live for his glory? Because if you do, then your happiness is secure. It's going to be as secure as his glory, which we know in the end, God will have glory. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're watching on YouTube, please like this video as it will help in spreading this message into the global online community. Please consider subscribing to our page so that you will receive notices when we post new messages. If you're watching this on Rumble, please hit the Rumble button for this video so that the gospel can be spread into the Rumble community. Also, consider subscribing to our Rumble channel. You can also listen to our podcast on Amazon Music and Apple Podcasts. We hope you have a blessed day.